He is risen. Amen, indeed. It's good to see all of you this morning, and you look like uh, uh, happily decorated Easter eggs this morning, many of you. For those of you who didn't get a bulletin as you came in, I apologize for that. It's hard to predict on Easter morning. We printed more than we normally do. But uh, if you, again, I'll say if you see someone around you without a bulletin, please be quick to share that with them. Decades ago, when Josh McDowell was still traveling around university campuses preaching and teaching and defending the Christian faith, a student at a university in South America stood up and asked him, Why, Professor McDowell, do you say that it is impossible to refute the truth of Christianity? And Josh McDowell's answer was a simple one. He said, It is impossible to refute the truth of Christianity. Because it is impossible to explain away one event in history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. It is the event on which Christianity either stands or falls. I mean, the Apostle Paul himself admitted as much. He said, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile. It is meaningless. If Christ was not raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. If Christ was not bodily raised from the day, from the dead on a day in history, then there's no reason for us to be here today. The resurrection is an event that happened in history. And it is therefore rooted in history. And before it even became history, it was anticipated in Scripture by one of Scripture's oldest books. From Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written, that they were recorded in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall see him and no other. How my heart yearns within me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father, we pray that you would be with us. You have called us to come before you, and so we know that you will. We pray that you would give to us your spirit so that we might see and understand and even better believe the truth of your good news in your word. Lord, help us to believe this truth of the resurrection of Christ. It is, we confess, something that is beyond our grasp. It is something that only resides in our imaginations apart from your Holy Spirit working in our souls. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that and that you would do that for your own glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Years ago I heard from a wise counselor named Tom Elkin. He was teaching about the four kinds of power, of influence that a parent has with their child over the course of life. He explained these four kinds of power, physical, material, relational, and intellectual. He explained them like this. He said that when a a child is born from the earliest days, physical power is the primary influence that a parent has on that child. 
Because when a child, an infant, is hungry, a parent has to pick that child up and nurse or put a bottle to his or her mouth. When a diaper needs to be changed, a parent has to pick that child up and put them on the table. They don't ask the child if they want to do it. They just do it and change their diaper. Physical influence is the primary influence early in life. But that particular type of influence begins to wane, doesn't it, parents? who have older children, you know when a child gets to be 6, 8, 10 years old, depending on your own genetic makeup, maybe earlier than that. Your physical influence no longer has so much sway over your child and it diminishes more and more and more until there's just no power at all in the physical influence. And if there is such influence wielded later in life, it's in the form of abuse. And then there's material influence. He explained that Material influence is an influence that is weak early in life. Your infant child has no regard for your buying power, although they are somewhat influenced by it. You can't change their behavior by buying something for them. They don't care about that. But that influence does increase, doesn't it? Over the course of some years, ages 6, 8, 10, 12, your children begin to realize that you can buy something for them or you can't buy something for them and that has a tendency to influence behavior but then that begins to vary over the course of the years as they go forward as a child becomes an adult and can provide, provide for themselves and when material influence is wielded later in life it's often only in the form of manipulation and then there's relational influence relational influence this one early on is sort of weak, at least in regards to behavior. It's extremely important. It's extremely important for a parent to hold their child and to bond with their infant child. That's critical in the early stages of life, but it's somewhat weak in terms of influencing behavior. But it does increase through ages 6, 8, 10, 12. A parent begins to realize, mom and dad, a child does realize, mom and dad, they enjoy me. They want to be with me. And I enjoy being with them. And so that relational influence begins to grow. And over the course of time, if it is healthy, it grows and grows and grows. And it remains strong for life because it becomes love as a child recognizes. And then there's intellectual influence. The fourth kind of power a parent might wield. This one, upon birth, is the weakest of them all. Because your infant child doesn't care what you know or don't know. They have no regard for your advanced degree or your lack thereof. It doesn't matter to them at all in terms of their own behavior. But of course, that does begin to increase as a child grows. Age 6, 8, 10, 12 years old, they begin to think, Mom and Dad know a lot of stuff. In fact, they get to some point, I think they peek out thinking that Mom and Dad know everything. And so you can, you can wield that power over your child to influence their behavior. But then, of course, the teenage years come. And they begin to realize mom and dad don't know everything that I thought they did. And there becomes to be a low point at some point along the way when they begin to think mom and dad don't know anything at all. And I know everything. And so that influence has no power at all. But then it begins to return. Later it begins to increase again as... That child grows to be an adult and grows into some knowledge and wisdom themselves. They begin to realize that dad and mom do know some things and they love me. And suddenly, physical and material influence has no influence at all in a healthy relationship. 
Job is an old and wise and wealthy man of the ancient world who is forced by his circumstance to deal with his own doubts. And he comes to this very conclusion. And the hope of the resurrection helps to get him there. Knowledge in this world may be power to this world, but without faith in God, it's only temporary. What must you know on this Easter morning? You must know this. My Father in heaven knows all things, and He loves me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that that's true. Job is not questioning what he knows. Here he's asserting it. What does Job know? Well, I know, he says, that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you remember Job's story? We, we learned a little bit about it. We were reminded some of it on Thursday evening at Flagpole Hill on Monday, Maundy Thursday as John spoke to us and preached the homily from Job 19, the first half of this chapter. And despite what it may appear in this context, kind of out of context in the bulletin as you read these words here, Job is not playing the role of the majestic and optimistic prophet with these words. He's not doing that. These words are sort of out of context on the page of your bulletin, aren't they? Job has immediate concerns because his life has completely fallen apart and for no apparent reason. The book of Job begins in chapter 1 with these words. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That is among the most favorable descriptions of a human being in all of Scripture. There, there's just not another person apart from David being called a man after God's own heart that is more favorable than this description of Job. But then we're given a view behind the scenes. And we see Satan appear with the angels standing before God to give an account for their activity. You know, Satan has to do such things. And he gives an account of his activity and, and God implies perhaps a suggestion to Satan. He says to him, have you considered... My servant, Job, he's an upright man and blameless, God says to Satan. And Satan responds with a sly answer. He says, that's because you've surrounded him with physical and material blessings. Let me take those away and then we'll see what your Job thinks of you. And so Satan strikes Job hard. Satan hadn't heard the lecture on parental influence. He didn't understand the different types of influence. Perhaps he thought that physical and material were the things that really, truly mattered. And so Satan strikes Job very hard. He takes his children away, his wealth away. He takes away his health and even his reputation among his friends. All those things have begun to wane and fade in painful ways in Job's life. And his friends come among him to counsel him, to advise him. And as they evaluate the situation, this is about the summary of the best that they can do. They say, only the unrighteous could suffer like this. Job, you must be guilty of something. What did you do? And so Job defends himself. And it is those words of self-defense 
that Job wishes could be written down, recorded in a book, engraved in the rock. Those are the words that Job wants to be engraved in the rock. His own words of self-defense. That's what he's interested in doing here at this point. He needs a testimony for himself, by himself. He needs something to last beyond his own life because he's as good as dead and he knows it. But he also knows that engraving it in the rock would not be good enough either. And so here's what Job knows. Verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Job needs someone to speak for him. He needs someone to do for him what he cannot do for himself. He needs a Redeemer. The Hebrew word is goel. That's the word that Job uses here. He needs a goel, a redeemer. That is, a kinsman redeemer, which is an Old Testament concept that you see elsewhere in Scripture. A kinsman redeemer was a man who had the ability and even the responsibility to rescue or to vindicate his relative who was in trouble. The book of Ruth, of course, is the most well-known example of a kinsman redeemer. Ruth was a young widow, and Boaz was the relative of her deceased husband who rescued her from a certain life of poverty and despair as a widow. Job has a problem, though. He doesn't have any relatives. He doesn't have a relative who can redeem him, but only God himself. And so Job knows that God will speak for him. But I doubt that Job knew exactly how that was going to unfold. I don't really think that, that, that these Old Testament characters really knew exactly how God's redemptive plan was going to develop over the course of days. They looked forward in faith to what they knew God was going to do, but they didn't know exactly how God was going to do it. Job was an upright man, but Job was not a righteous man. Job makes that clear in his confession of sin in chapter 42. At the end of his book, he says this. He says, I've spoken what I did not understand. I'd heard of you, Lord, but now I've seen you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Job is a foreshadowing of the righteous man, of the one who would, like Job, suffer as an innocent and even die but who then would rise and in the end stand upon the earth to speak in Job's defense. Do you know that this Redeemer lives for you too? Do you know that? I mean, you can carve into the rock all that you want about your own list of self-defense. You can do that. People do that on their tombstones. They, they literally carve into the rock all that they have done and, and how they want people to remember them as though that were going to be some effective testimony on their behalf when they stand before God. But I urge that you should know that this Redeemer lives for you as well because not only does Job know his Redeemer lives, he also knows something else. He knows, he says, that I also will live. Job knows that he also will live. Verse 26, And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, 
and my eyes shall see him and no other. Job knew that his own days were numbered. I mean, his skin was presently afflicted at this time. I think that's why he uses the word thus. In verse 26, after my skin has been thus destroyed. I think he's speaking to his friends and he's pointing to his own skin. He's saying, do you see this? In this way, my skin is being destroyed. I am dying. My days are numbered, friends. You see that I'm on my way out. Mortality was very real to this man, which is a very gracious gift, by the way. To have one's mortality to be real to them, it forces you to consider what comes after this flesh and bone. Job was considering that. And Job was certain of something. Despite all of this, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see Him for myself. My eyes shall see Him and no other. Again, I think that Job is wrestling with something here. He's anticipating something. Maybe he's anticipating resurrection. He's certainly anticipating one who lives for him. And he's recognizing that he himself will see that one. But I think what he's anticipating here is a chance to state his case before God. And guess what? Everyone will get that chance. Everyone. Everyone will get that chance. In John chapter 5, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's explaining to them in the context of of the Jews who want to put him to death because he equates himself with the authority of God. And he explains some of that to these disciples there in John chapter 5. And he says to them, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All who are in their tombs will hear my voice and will come out. One to this side and one to that side. In other words, everyone will see resurrection, Christian and non-Christian alike. Some weeks ago, I told you the story of the Italian man a hundred years ago who was skeptical of Christianity and the resurrection in particular. And he feared the resurrection and he insisted to his family, he said... I want nothing to do with any resurrection. If there is such a thing, I want to be sure that I have no part in it. And so when I die, I want you to place an an enormous and thick stone slab over my grave so that when the resurrection comes, I'll be stuck. I can't come out and participate in any resurrection. And I told you the story of how an an acorn was, was lodged underneath the edge of that stone slab and it began to sprout and grow into an oak tree. And over the decades, that oak tree split that stone slab into. The seed broke the stone. As the seed of the word of God, they will hear my voice, Jesus says, will split any stone that may stand between you and resurrection. Christian or not, resurrection will come to all. And what will you say to God when you live again? What will you say? Will you say, God... I tried hard. Will you say, God, I did my best? Or will you say, God, Jesus lives? You will live again. But the only reason, the only reason that you will stand that chance before God the Father 
is because Jesus already did it. The, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily historical resurrection of Jesus is so crucial to Christianity because it establishes our reconciliation with the Father. In Romans chapter 4, Paul explains this. He, he explains, he says, Jesus was delivered up to the cross for our sin and he was raised from the grave for our justification. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus, establishes our justification before God. Because He lives again, you by faith are justified before the Father. Now, believing the resurrection, though, may be something of a challenge for you. Certainly it's a challenge for those around you, for your friends, for your neighbors, for those that you might talk about it with on an Easter Sunday, if you were to do such a thing. And I can't prove it to you beyond the shadow of a doubt, but there are reasons to believe. Even beyond faith, there are concrete historical reasons to believe. I want to offer you a few of those. We spoke moments ago from 1 Corinthians 15 in our sharing of the peace. Church, today we deliver to you as a first importance what we also received from the church of ages past that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He has been raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There are reasons to believe that. Okay, here they are. There are four of them that I can give you today. And they are these. Women and worldview and witnesses. And the fourth one doesn't start with a W, sorry. Church. Women and witnesses, worldview, and church. So women is the first one. We read this in our liturgy at the very beginning of the worship service from Matthew chapter 28. You know, that first morning of the resurrection on that day, who was first to go to the tomb? The women were. And that's what the gospel accounts give to us. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there. They came to the tomb of Jesus. And the gospel accounts give us that fact that the testimony of these women was the first testimony to the resurrection. Now, in the first century, the testimony of a woman... Ladies, I apologize. It's not my fault. In the first century, the testimony of a woman was not acceptable in court. It was unacceptable. What a woman had to say about something that no man had seen was always in doubt. It was always under skepticism. And for the gospel accounts to include the fact that, that women were the first to testify to the resurrection... There's no way they would have written that unless it actually happened. It would have done no good for their cause except that it actually happened. So the fact that women testified to it first is an enormous proof of the resurrection's historicity. The second one is witnesses. Okay, witnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, which we read from, the Apostle Paul explains there to the Corinthian church some 20 years after the resurrection. He's writing to this church and there are doubts among those in the church about the resurrection. And Paul writes to them that Jesus, raised from the dead, appeared to more than 500 people. And Paul says to them then, he says, many of whom are still alive. Now, it was just 20 years since, so you can imagine many of them were still alive. And what Paul wants to do there is, is the equivalent of us texting our contact info to someone on the phone. You know, hey, you want to get in touch with this person, here's their contact info, go ask them. 
I mean, they, they literally could go and, and find these people and talk to them and ask them, I hear you saw this happen. Tell me about it. And Paul is trying to expose himself and in his story. Hey, Jesus rose from the dead. Go ask these people. There are lots of people that saw it. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives one interesting little detail. It's almost funny. He says he appeared to, to more than 500 people, and he also appeared to James. Now, do you know who James was? James was the half-brother of Jesus. Okay. If there's any person on the face of the earth that is not going to believe that you're God, it's your brother. Am I right? I mean, you all know what I'm talking about. James grew up with Jesus at home, right? I mean, Jesus was his older brother, and they grew up together. He saw his older brother. And I guarantee you, there's not a younger brother on the face of the earth that will tell that his his older brother is God. That's not going to happen. And Paul wants for these people to know, even Jesus' brother who grew up with him. By the beginning of the book of Acts, James did not believe that Jesus was God until the resurrection. He didn't believe it. But after the resurrection, he did. So women and witnesses. The third one is worldview. Okay, so in the first century, it's, it's common for us in our enlightened age to assume that, and scholars do this all the time, to assume that people in the first century who claimed the resurrection of Jesus, oh, that's, that's so sweet, it's nice and religious and all, but those people were just ignorant. They didn't know. And they were prone to such superstitious beliefs. Those people would believe anything. You know, they were not enlightened. That's simply not true. In the first century worldview, it was unheard of to imagine a resurrection. In the Hellenistic world, the, the Greeks and the Romans, which were dominant in Jesus' day, the, the Hellenistic worldview was such that the material world is inferior. That's actually something to escape. And when you die, you get to go to live in the spirit world. No one would want to be resurrected into a body. That would just be absurd. And even among the Jews, the Sadducees were a group of Jews who simply didn't believe in the resurrection at all. And the Pharisees only believed in the resurrection at the end of the age. Only a resurrection of everyone altogether, but not the resurrection of any man now in our day. Nobody believed in resurrection. That was their worldview. But it changed overnight. Literally overnight, that worldview changed. Worldviews don't change overnight. I mean, think about the flat earth theory. The world is flat. No, it's round. No, it's flat. You're crazy. Prove it to me. Someone goes and sails across the ocean and they make their way around the world. They come back. I've been. I've seen it. It's round. No, it's not. It's flat. There's arguments. Somebody dies in the process and it takes years for someone to begin to really realize and the influence begins to spread and the worldview changes. It, ta- it takes forever. But in this case, this worldview changed literally overnight. And suddenly, hundreds and thousands of people were believing in the resurrection of a person from the tomb. And that leads to the fourth one. Women, witnesses, worldview, church. Do you know that the existence of the church worldwide is, I would say at least, the greatest testimony to the resurrection of Jesus There is no reason why the church should exist. Because for the first 300 years of its life, the church faced nothing but persecution. 
You were put to death in gruesome ways if you claimed to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. You were put to death for it. The Roman Colosseum stands there in Rome today even as a testament to that sort of thing. How many Christians were put to death in that Colosseum because of their profession of faith in the resurrection of Christ? People don't die for a myth. The church did not create the resurrection. Rather, the church was created by the resurrection. Those are four enormous reasons why the resurrection is true. And you also will see resurrection yourself, either to everlasting life or to everlasting judgment. And you know that down deep. You know it's true in your soul because of the third thing that Job knows. What is it? Job knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that he also will live. And then he says, I know that life is what I long for. Life is what I long for. A few years ago, some British musicians and artists in England gathered together for a project. They wanted to produce a television show um, exploring kind of the, I guess, the, the significance of meaning and influence in their art. And to do so, they polled, they conducted a poll of of thousands of their British fellows with one question. The question was this, what is your happiest memory? They wanted to reach down into the souls of their British compatriots. What is your happiest memory, they asked. And the, the answers began to come back, thousands of answers. And among all those answers, there were a lot of first dates and first loves and weddings and birthdays and holidays and even memories of loved ones lost. And among all those answers, as they kind of culled through them and studied them and evaluated all these answers, what is your happiest memory? They began to notice three things. They said, the first thing was this, almost none, almost none of those memories had anything to do with a material possession. Almost none of them had to do with something that could be bought with money. The second one was this. They said almost all of them were about relationships with family or friends or lovers. Almost all of them. And the third thing was this. By far, by far, the most common word that repeated over and over and again in these thousands of answers, the most common word was home. Home. Now, these were memories, of course, memories of happiness, which by definition as memories were things that had been lost. They were in the past. They were remembering these things. They didn't hold them in their hands anymore. And here they were, expressions of longing for relationships, longing for home. And it is, we have to admit, a fundamental human longing that ultimately cannot be met in this world. You know, they they say you can never really go home again. You know, they say that. And the older you get, I think the more you realize that's true. When we moved back to Dallas 11 years ago, I grew up here in Dallas for 20 years and then was gone for 20 years. When we moved back here 11 years ago, I remember going over to the house where I grew up and not too far from here and, and, and driving around there. I think we even went to tour the house. It was, on, it was for sale. It was, was on the market. And we got to tour the house and go walk through my old bedroom. It was fascinating to see how small it was. But it wasn't home anymore. It was just an empty shell of a place. 
I could kind of see, you know, memories that were there, but, but it wasn't home. It wasn't. You can't go home again. It's a fundamental human longing that just can't be met in this world at all. And Job knows that. Verse 27, he says, I shall see him for myself. My eyes shall see him. How my heart yearns within me. My heart yearns within me. I have a, a, a commentary on my shelf that was given to me by an uncle. It was a great gift, a, a set of commentaries on the Old Testament in their what uh, theologians call exegetical commentaries which means they're very heavy on the languages. They're, they get very deep into the Hebrew languages of the Old Testament. I am no Hebrew scholar at all, and I really wrestle with, with this commentary. It's hard for me. But it's interesting to see these commentators very literal translations of the Old Testament. I mean, they, their, their goal was to translate as literally as they possibly could and then explain what they were writing. And their translation of this statement, my heart yearns within me, here's their translation. My kidneys languish in my gut. <laughs> my kidneys languish in my gut. Literally. It's a Semitic idiom, of course. You know, in, in English we translate it a little bit differently because it makes more sense to do it. But, but the organs, the gut, as it were, in the Semitic languages were a seat of the, the, the most tender and the deepest affections and emotions like love and desire and longing. You know, the English translation just doesn't quite get us there, does it? My, my heart yearns. That's nice. But my kidneys languish in my gut. That's what Job is saying here. Job's heart yearns. Now, most directly, I think, to prove himself to God, to defend himself, to make his case, to establish his own standing before God, but I think underneath that there is a deeper longing for Job. A longing not to be proven right, but to be made right. A longing to be reconciled to the Creator. A longing to be with His Father in heaven. A longing for home where alone there actually is life. Because life is what you long for. And only resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, can gain it for you. Only that can gain it for you. The psalmist in 119 puts it this way. He writes, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise, O Lord. Like the psalmist, Job had his eyes on a promise. And the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of its fulfillment. It is not the fulfillment itself. It is the guarantee of it. And Easter should stir your longing for that life. Now I think Job probably had no idea really what role he was playing in the drama of redemption. I, I don't know what Job knew. I, I would guess that he didn't really know what role he was playing in the scope of the history of redemption. Job is a signpost for us. The, the words of Job chapter 19 are striking as John and I were thinking through those words in preparation for Maundy Thursday and for today. They're very striking words. The first half of Job chapter 19, you find these words of the upright man suffering unjustly. You hear these words, God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. I call for help, but there's no justice. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. 
God has set darkness upon me. God has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. Are those the words of Job? Or are those the words of Jesus on the cross? The innocent one who in the end will stand upon the earth and when he does, he will testify to the Father for you. Do you long to see him? Stories told of an old orphanage in rural Mississippi years and years ago. An orphanage where a local pastor from a small town nearby would come and speak to the, the little boys who lived there in that orphanage about the Bible. He would lead a Bible study with them and teach them about the gospel. These boys who had memories of broken families and deceased parents living there now in the orphanage without them. These boys loved to hear this pastor explain to them that one day God, their heavenly father, would return and restore them to the home that they were meant for. That was these boys' favorite story to hear from Scripture. And so one day the director of that orphanage was retiring and a new director was coming in to take his place. And so he arrived and the old director took him a tour of the facility. And they walked around the building and as they passed along the east side of the building, the new man recognized that the windows on the east side of the building were filthy. They were smudged. And he asked the older director why. And the man explained. He said, you know, it's funny. Our, our biggest maintenance problem in this whole facility is trying to keep those east side windows clean. Because every morning, all these little boys wake up and they rush to those east side windows where the sun is rising in order to see if today is the day that their Father from Heaven is going to come and take them home. Easter morning should be an east side morning for you. Because of what you know, your Redeemer lives. You also will live. And the life that you long for has been won for you by the bodily resurrection of the Son of God Himself. He is risen. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that You would help us to believe. Would You help us to recognize the truth of Your Word. To see, Lord, that even though what You have done in history is beyond our comprehension, it is more than we possibly could conceive of ourselves. And yet it is true. Father, help us to recognize that. Help us to relish that truth, to believe it, and to follow you in faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.